So I'll be reading from John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Well, if you're familiar with the popular TV show Parks and Recreation, you may be acquainted with the character Chris Traeger. Chris is athletic, positive, and energetic. He believes he cannot live everyone else, and he's determined to remain free of illness and disease. He believes he can live to about 130, I think. In one episode, a costume party is held, and everyone plans to dress up for it. And Chris announces that he'll be dressing as his worst fear. So the party comes, he arrives, and not much has changed about his appearance, except there's some white dye streaked through his hair, extra wrinkles drawn on his face, and glasses for his worsening vision. Chris's greatest fear is aging and death. He can't handle it. And while we watch and we laugh at his naivete and silliness, we also share in his fear, I think, don't we? I mean, with all the attention on health and image in our culture, with the insane idea that is cryogenics and the desperate search for staying young, aren't we obsessed with not thinking about death? We come this morning to our final study of the signs of, John, of Jesus in the book of John. So each of these signs has, remember, not only been a miracle that's pointed to something amazing, but signs, so things that pointed to Jesus' identity. And we come now to the last sign that John gives us in his gospel. We've, he's been writing all these down as kind of stacks of evidence 
to prove who Jesus is and why he's come. And once this sign is complete, John will turn his attention to the final days of Christ as he prepares for the cross. John 11, which Dan just read for us, finds Jesus far from Jerusalem across the Jordan River. And it's there that he receives news about one of his dearest friends, that he's very ill. And so as we consider this chapter, let's consider it in three parts. First, the death of Lazarus. Second, the voice of God. And third, the death of Christ. So first, the death of Lazarus. We learn in these first several verses that Jesus' friend, Lazarus, is sick. Lazarus lives in Bethany, close to Jerusalem. And so his sisters, Martha and Mary, who are close to Jesus, send him with the news. So Jesus has spent months healing the sick and working miracles, so it makes sense that they would send to him. However, after he gets the news, Jesus says there in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This reminds us of how he responded to the blind man last week in chapter 9, right? The man was not blind due to sin, per se, but so that God's glory might be displayed in him. And here, too, Jesus determines to reveal his glory through dead Lazarus. And so uh, we expect him, since he says this illness does not lead to death, we expect him to get up and leave right away, right? His friend is sick. He must go heal him. He loved these folks, verse 5 says. But in verse 6, we get a surprise, So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So instead of responding quickly to the sister's plea for help, Jesus just hangs out. Why? Well, we see down in verse 14 that Jesus delays his departure so that his disciples might believe. He purposefully puts off going to Lazarus so that his followers might know more fully who he is. He delays not because he doesn't care, but precisely because he does care he loves his people. So verse 7, after two days of waiting, he announces to his disciples his plan to go to Judea. And you can see they aren't too thrilled about it there. So back at the end of chapter 10, if you look back, Jesus has called himself equal with God, and the Jewish religious leaders have picked up stones to stone him. And so now that he's far away from Jerusalem, who would want to go back, right? You can understand the disciples' reluctance. Well, you see there, much like in chapter 9, Jesus uses the same imagery of light and darkness and teaches them that he's the light of the world. And much like the sun only shines for a number of hours and work must be done during that time, so Jesus only has a number of days before his death will come, and he must work until that time. So what's his work? I need to go awaken Lazarus, verse 11. And the disciples, I think, breathe a sigh of relief here. Like, phew, oh, he's asleep. Okay, we don't need to go back then, Jesus. Uh, But in verse 14, Jesus just shoots straight with them. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. So the disciples go along with Jesus, so they're not thrilled with the concept. And in verse 17, they all arrive outside Bethany, only to discover that Lazarus has been dead four days. The process of mourning is well underway. Uh, Jerusalem is only a few miles away, John says. So Jews have come out to comfort the family. So the family of Lazarus seems to be a pretty... um, Uh, family that had a lot of respect in the area, so people want to come grieve and be sad with them. And you just see grief here. You see no hope left. Lazarus is gone. Martha still wants to see Jesus, though. We know from other passages that she's kind of the proactive one. So in verse 21, she goes out and meets him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Martha's not angry here. She's stating belief. 
Jesus, you're powerful. And if you had arrived earlier, you would have had authority to turn back this illness. I know. But even now she knows he has power. He has an intimate relationship with God. He can ask what he wants. But even though she has this faith, she realizes there's not much left to do before the last day, right? Just too late. Jesus has come, which is great, but Jesus is too late. And Jesus responds with what Don Carson calls in verse 23, a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Your brother will rise again. And Martha realizes that's a really sweet thing of Jesus to say, you know? She was probably already comforted with that by the Jews in her house. Of course, he'd rise again on the last day, right? Verse 24. But then Jesus says something remarkable because Martha takes Jesus's words to mean kind of that final day, that resurrection, many days, many years, many centuries, maybe even millennia in the future. But Jesus draws her eyes from the future and zooms them in on himself, the person standing right in front of her. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus is taking a core theological doctrinal truth that Martha knows all too well, and he's showing her that's not some pie in the sky, distant reality. The reality of the resurrection is standing right in front of her. As one commentator puts it, there is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of Christ. Death seems like the end, but Jesus says here that in him is life, eternal life, resurrection power. So like we sang before the beginning of the service, only Jesus has the keys to death and hell. He's the great decider of life and death. Martha, do you believe And though she can't possibly know all of what that means, Martha believes. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Verse 28, she goes to get Mary. She pulls her aside, tells her Jesus is there, and she does so secretly so Mary will get some alone time with Jesus because there's lots of people there. But as soon as Mary gets up, everyone thinks she's going to grieve at the burial site, so they get up, go with her. But Mary goes to Jesus in verse 32, and she just falls at his feet. Mary, the more emotional one that we learn about in Luke. And she says the exact same thing Martha had said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So at this point, Jesus is just confronted with this group of mourners. He doesn't have the opportunity to talk with Mary, so he asks where Lazarus has been laid. And here we see the second point in our passage, the voice of God. So verse 33, Jesus sees this crowd mourning, and John says something interesting. He says, Jesus became deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And that idea of deeply moved doesn't describe kind of like when you're watching a a sad movie. No, we're talking about a deep, indignant anger from Jesus. Jesus isn't only grieving here. He's full of wrath. We see later in verse 35 that he weeps as they lead him to the tomb. The the Jews chalk up that weeping to his deep love for Lazarus while others wonder why he couldn't have come earlier and saved him. And then again in verse 38, Jesus is deeply moved. What is he so angry about? Jesus here is confronted with the brokenness of a sinful world. He sees death and the havoc it's wreaked on the lives of those he loves. And he's angry at sin. He's angry at death. He's angry at Satan. 
Church, Jesus is not a stoic, passive savior. Jesus is God in the flesh, expressing emotion and feeling as he experiences and feels the acute pain of his fallen creation. This is a reminder here of the utter depths to which our Savior, our God, went to suffer and die for us. He didn't just come to live. He didn't just come to die. He came to feel pain. But there's even more going on here. Jesus isn't merely angry at death. He's angry at the unbelief of his people. He sees them mourning as if there's no hope. So grief for the dead is necessary and appropriate and biblical, but Jesus is seeing here what he's seen all throughout, what we've seen all throughout our study in John's gospel, that his people reject him. They won't believe in him and they despair in that unbelief. We see in verse 38, he's deeply angered again. And it seems like that's a connection to their unbelief in verse 37. Could not he have opened the eyes of this? Uh, he opened the eyes. Why can't he keep this man from dying? They're, they're not mocking Jesus. They just wonder, could, couldn't he have done this? Their faith is shallow. So Jesus is both angered and grieved by the sorrow and unbelief of his people. So he comes to the tomb in verse 39 and commands for it to be opened. Martha objects for good reason. Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. I love the King James. He, will, he stinketh. Friends, Lazarus was really, really dead. There's no mistaking it. So there was a belief in these early times that life could still linger around a dead body for three days. But fourth day, he was gone. So now, Lazarus, the aroma of death has just taken over. Martha says, Jesus, just spare yourself. He's gone. But Jesus is not deterred, is he? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Isn't that the message of John? If you believe, you'll see my glory. So the stone is rolled away. Makes you think of another stone rolled away. And Jesus begins praying to his father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Church, Jesus' prayer here is a perfect summary of all the signs we've been looking at in John. Jesus stayed across the Jordan for two days so this could happen. Jesus turned water into wine so this could happen. He healed the blind man so this could happen. He healed the lame man so this could happen so that his people might believe he had been sent from God so that they might see the sign, trust the Messiah, and see him as the promised Savior. And so, in verse 43, it's the showdown at the OK Corral, really. You can just picture this in your mind. The passage crescendos to a deafening climax. It's like a showdown between the light of the world and the darkness of death, staring each other in the eye. And Jesus stands at the mouth of the tomb and shouts with what John calls a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He utters those words. And remember, friends, that's the very voice of God. The voice that had created life amidst the darkness that was over the face of the deep in Genesis 1 now commands again for life to be created from the depths of the grave. Death is just indeed like sleep to Jesus. And what do you do when you want to wake up a family member when it's time to go, right? You say, hey, get up. And they're like, oh, okay, okay, sorry. Same with Jesus. Lazarus come out and the dead man responds. 
Some people wonder if he didn't say Lazarus, if just all the dead people would have gotten up, right? I don't know, but it sounds kind of cool. Lazarus come out. You can imagine the, the thrill and shock of all gathered as out from the cave comes a man who had died. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Friends, complete authority, complete power. That summarizes what we've been looking at in these signs. The total death of Lazarus in the tomb four days is reversed, showing the total power of the Son of God. And all that's left to say is, unbind him, let him go. Church, would you behold the Son of God, the one who has power over death? He is a resurrection and a life. One thing remains to be seen. So we've seen the death of Lazarus, we've seen the voice of God. Let's see the death of Christ. So up to this point, as Dan read the passage earlier, you can see how kind of up to this, you know, it's a long chapter. So through 40 or so verses, the kind of the central theme of this passage has been the death of one man, Lazarus. He's kind of been our focal point. And Jesus has just shown amazingly how he has the power to turn back Lazarus's death, death and breathe life again into his dead body. But, but now we see a different death looming on the horizon. See, just like every other sign in John, this sign has a response. And just like most every other sign we've seen, this sign and this response is divided. Look there in verse 45. So after witnessing this sign, Jesus, or John tells us, many Jews who saw it believed. They saw what he did and they believed. This is what all the signs were meant to accomplish. John put them together, compiled them so that people would believe. Remember what he says in John 20. He's written down all these signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so these people believe. And you can remember from chapter two, some of these people believed just because of the signs, just because of how impressive they were. They didn't really believe in Jesus. And we're not told whether this is just kind of fake belief or if this is true belief. We hope that the belief of these Jews led them to life in the name of Christ. But if it did, what was the guarantee that if they believed they would receive eternal life? I mean, how would that be accomplished well, the Jews' response to Lazarus' resurrection shows us just how. So, many of them marvel, they believe, but just like them, right? Others go and tell the Pharisees. And the Pharisees gather their council together, the Sanhedrin, so the Pharisees couldn't make all these decisions themselves. They had to get all the official Jewish leaders together, and they freak out. What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Jewish leaders are not only upset that Jesus' teaching may lead the people astray. They're worried at this point that his teaching will just create a, an uprising, an upheaval across the region. And the Romans, who try to let the Jews kind of have a little bit of their own authority, they'll just come in and squash it and take over. You see what makes these Jewish leaders so anxious? They might lose their control. They might lose their authority and power over God's people. They need to save that. How many times do we feel that way with our control and the things we want power in our life? Whatever it's going to take, I'm going to keep this. Caiaphas has a good answer. Verse 49. 
So he's the high priest. He stands up and he basically says, you don't know what you're talking about. It's kind of what that first sentence means. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. I remember when I first read this, I was like, oh, Caiaphas is standing up for Jesus. And he's, he's trying to like, you know, not get them to just go over and lynch him. But he's no saint here, folks. Caiaphas's plan is devilish. He knows the only way they'll be able to hold on to their power is to kill Jesus. The one who has just defeated death must be put to death. Jesus must be the scapegoat for Israel. He must die so they can return to normal life, peaceable living under Roman rule. And so in verse 53, we see the game plan that these Jewish leaders come up with. Jesus must be put to death. Let's start planning on how to do that. And really for the rest of John, we see how that's fleshed out. The signs are over. Jesus will teach, but in a few days he's going to die. But notice there in verse 51, John gives us some commentary on what's really going on. So Caiaphas has spoken, but he's spoken something more deeply true than he could ever imagine. Jesus will indeed die. He will be a substitute for God's people and his death will bring peace, but not in any way the Jews could have foreseen. You know, Jesus would die to give life to his people. Jesus would die so that his people would be resurrected, not only physically, but spiritually, given new eternal life. The eternal life Jesus promised to Martha a few verses ago would only be possible if he would go to the cross and die for Martha. It's interesting, like John says Caiaphas does not say this of his own accord. It's almost like God's in control, using even evil man's words to bring about his plans. This statement indeed has a double meaning and it's inspired by God himself. One man will die for the people. One man will die for the people. And that death will bring them life. Through that death, all nations will hear the message of salvation. So Jesus withdraws there at the end of the passage until the proper time. He as Luke says, he set his face to die. He's determined to be substitute for his people. And our passage ends with the Jews at Passover in Jerusalem, and they're wondering where Jesus is. Is he going to come up and do more signs? Wouldn't that be cool? What's he up to? Where is he? Friends, Jesus will come up to Jerusalem. And this will be the last Passover. Jesus is coming up to be the Passover lamb, to be slain for his people. So friends, what are we to make of this incredible passage this morning? First, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, this is something really important if you want to understand what we believe and what the Bible teaches. Substitutionary death is at the heart of the gospel. So God in his holiness has created each of us to worship and live for him. Yet each of us has turned away from him and sought to live for ourselves. Each one of us. 
And because God is holy and just, he's declared that we deserve condemnation for our denial of him. Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin, kind of what we earn from our sin is death. So if the Bible's true, folks, that each of us deserve death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, judgment from God, eternal separation from his love forever in hell. Each of us deserves that, you and me. But friends, the good news of the gospel that we celebrate, that we've been singing about over and over again, is that when we could do nothing to save ourselves, Jesus came to take all our judgment in our place, to be the substitute, to step into our place and take the death we deserved. A few days after giving Lazarus life, Jesus went up to the cross, not a few miles away. And there he not only suffered and died physically, but he took all the wrath and judgment from God in heaven that was meant to rain down on you and me. And if we trust in him, he took that on himself. So friend, if if you will repent of your sin and, and turn to him, that's all you need to do. Accept and receive this gift of salvation. Jesus offers you freedom from spiritual death forever. So as he asked Martha, so I ask you, do you believe? Will you repent of your rebellion and turn to God and be saved? And Christians, I was struck by verse 26. Because if that's true, everything changes. Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's what Chris Traeger is after. That's what people who want to freeze their brain for a few decades are after. They want to never die. Brothers and sisters, here we see not merely Jesus' external power over physical death. We see his eternal power over spiritual death. And just as he called, come out to Lazarus, so Christian, he has spoken into each of our dead hearts, bound by sin in the darkness of our spiritual grave. Come out, come out to my everlasting light. Christian, you who are completely dead, come out and live. So if you're here and you're a brother and sister in Christ, just remember this. You were completely dead, but now you've heard the voice of God. You were completely bound by sin, but now you've been freed by the power of God. In Christ, you have new life forever. Surely our Christian faith stands or falls on this truth. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Any church who teaches elsewise just does not believe in Jesus. Friends, Whatever discouragements bring you in this morning, whatever fears you have going into this next week, remember this. If the worst happens and you die, the best will remain true and you'll live forever with your king. So three questions for you to think about as we close. Church, first, should we not be incredibly grateful this morning? I know it can be hard sometimes to kind of conjure up worshipy feelings but you don't have to conjure those up. Just feast on the truth and allow the spirit to work on your heart. You don't have to look happy on the outside. Just seek to understand what this means inside. I mean, do you hate the thought of death? Do you fear suffering? 
Jesus has an answer to those things. He is life. He is your resurrection, and he's coming again to fulfill the power he has over your worst enemy. And secondly, church, should we not be incredibly courageous this morning? I mean, can you imagine how invincible Lazarus must have felt after Jesus took him out of that tomb? I mean, let's just come up to the Pharisees and say, what can you do now, right? What, as the psalmist would say, what can man do to me? So it is with us. So it is with us. We should be the boldest people on earth, friends. Not because we're an extrovert, not because we're more excited about the gospel than other people, not because sharing the gospel with others, you know, gives us joy instead of fear. We should be the boldest people on the planet because Jesus has conquered death. We should be telling everyone about this Jesus because we know our security is in him. And finally, church, should we not be holy? Often we have the victim complex when it comes to our sin. We just can't shake it. It's a a besetting sin. And those things are true. But when you think about the passage you're going to hopefully, Lord willing, consider next week, Paul says in Romans 8, that the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in us. That voice, that power that called Lazarus to come out, that dwells in you, Christian. So sin is hard, temptation is hard. We confess that before. But remember, you have all the power in the world to turn away from it. Yes, you will fail. That's why we gather together on Sunday mornings. But Christian, you can grow in holiness. We have power to fight sin. An old Puritan prayer goes like this. Jesus strides forth the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He My gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me here the proof that his offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is broken, that his wrongful throne is leveled. Lord, give me the assurance that in Christ I died, in him I rose, in his life I live, in his victory I triumph, in his ascension I will finally be glorified. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've had over the past several months to consider your seven signs in the Gospel of John. Lord, we ask that you would bear fruit in this study. We know that your word tells us that the purpose of these signs is so that we might believe that you are the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in your name. And so I pray for those here who are believers that you would strengthen their belief in you. And I pray for all those here who yet do not believe that you are the son of God and that if they believe in you, they could have life, spiritual life, eternal life. Lord, by your spirit, would you continue the good work of these signs written 2,000 years ago and save them now. And for the rest of us, Lord, we are so humbled.
we want to have life in and of ourselves. But all we've offered you in the gospel transaction is death, our death. But Jesus, in your miraculous, wonderful grace, you've given us your life, eternal life, better than Lazarus's life because Lazarus would die again. You've given us life that will last forever. And so, Lord, would you do us the amazing grace of igniting our hearts as a church with passion and love for Jesus, that we would bathe ourselves in the truth of this passage. And finally, Lord, however we come to this passage, feeling spiritually drained, feeling spiritually pumped, we just stop. And no matter where our state is, as Christians, we say thank you. Lord, you come to us as, you are, as we are and so we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying as a substitute in our place. And thank you for defeating our worst enemy and defeating death forever. Hear our praises now as we proclaim that you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.